Hi, I'm Xavier McFarlane, and welcome to the Catholic City Podcast from the Mary Foundation. Today's episode is pulled from the archives and features Joe Scheidler, founder of the Pro-Life Action League in 1980. He is considered by many to be the godfather of pro-life activism and has spoken on more than 2,000 occasions, both in person and on TV and radio programs. Joe is a recognized expert on abortion culture, sidewalk counseling, the spiritual dimension of the pro-life movement, media relations, and the moral responsibility to fight abortion. While he did pass away last year at the age of 93, his legacy lives on through his wife Anne and son Eric, who are both still actively involved in the Pro-Life Action League today. This talk, originally recorded in 1994, is full of timeless wisdom, but it also serves as a fantastic look back to see how far we've come in the pro-life mission, especially now as Roe v. Wade hangs in the balance. If you want to get more involved in pro-life work, Make sure to check out the Pro-Life Action League's website, as well as 40 Days for Life. But first, if you ever considered becoming a Catholic or are a Catholic seeking to deepen your relationship with Christ, please visit us at catholiccity.com to order our Catholic scapulars, books, booklets, relic prayer medals, and best-selling novels by Bud McFarlane. Sign up for Bud's twice-a-month Catholic City email message, where he's been sharing profound insights, sage advice, and crazy stories for over 25 years. We are also the world's largest distributor of the Purple Scapular, given by Mary to the approved French mystic Marie-Julie Jehenny in the late 1800s. You can learn more at our website, catholiccity.com, which is the online home of the Mary Foundation. Since the dawn of the internet, we've been a world leader in delivering proven, free, or low-cost tools for evangelization right to your door. And now, let's begin. I've always been fascinated by the name that the church gives us, the people here the, that are are present on earth, present in the church, that go to Mass on Sunday, receive the sacraments. We're called the church militant. Now, there are a lot of names we could be called. Uh, we have, as, we, as, as all Catholics know, three churches. The church triumphant, those who have gone before, who are saved, those who are with God. That's the church triumphant. It's all over. No more tears, no more worries, no more condoms. No more pornography, no more Clinton. Uh, we have to be a, a no more uh, suffering. We've they're victorious. They're there. The church triumphant. Then we have in the church the church suffering. Those who lived a good life or lived a bad life but converted toward the end, and they're in purgatory. The church still teaches that there is a place of cleansing for people who are not quite ready to face God, the awesome, uh, immutable, uh, perfectly pure God. And so we believe in that, and that's called the church suffering. But what's left, those of us here in the Vali Lacrimarum, this veil of tears, are not the church waiting around, uh, the, the church shuffling their feet. We are the church militants. Now that says something to me. We're the fighters. We got a war on our hands, and we'll be tied if we're not fighting. It's so clear to me when you look around and you see this cesspool that we live in, where our kids are fornicating all over the place, and we've got uh, we have actual uh, diseases in epidemic forms: AIDS, chlamydia, herpes, hepatitis B, gonorrhea, way up, syphilis, a pandemic, and 50-some new venereal diseases, just to discuss one area of human activity. When you consider 
the pornographers, the fact that our own government is running pornographic condom ads on the network television stations. You can hardly turn on a TV set without, within a few seconds, if, if not in the middle of something obscene, you get, you get pornography of some sort. The movies, the newspapers, the magazines, we are inundated, surrounded with evil, with temptation, as we've not seen in, in our time, and is possibly unprecedented in the history of the world because of the, the new modes of communication we have. The X-rated video can be brought into the home. You don't have to go out and stand in line at some sleazy theater. You can have your X-rated movies at home, and, and plenty of people do. So we've got a lot of sin surrounding us. We've got a lot of evil in the world, and that means people who believe in God, who believe in the commandments, who believe in Christ, who want to get to heaven, have a fight on their hands. And so we are the fighters, the church militant. And we don't just fight for our own salvation, but we have to fight for the salvation of others. We have to fight for the entire community. Uh, we are our brother's keeper. The answer to that question of Cain, am I my brother's keeper, was yes, you're supposed to be. You're certainly not his killer. And in our society today, if we aren't part of the saving process, we're part of the process that is drawing people into hell. And so we have to be clear on that. Now, my own background is kind of interesting because when I was just a tyke, one of the first things I can remember happening in my life, I was at the University of Notre Dame, and I was attending the ordination of my cousin, my older cousin, Russell Scheidler. And I was in that beautiful Sacred Heart Church on the campus, and they let me kneel in a choir stall because I was little, and I could be close to what was happening. And I was fascinated by the altar at Sacred Heart Church at Notre Dame. And if you've ever seen it, and many people have because a lot of people drop by there to see a game and they run over to the church and they have little tours, the altar is covered with angels. But they're not just your common little cherub-type angels. These are angels wearing armor, carrying spears with great big long silver wings. These are angels prepared to do battle. They are Michael, the archangel, who defends us in battle. And so my first image of an angel was a fighter, was somebody who swept one-third of the dissenting angels out of heaven. That was the image I had of angels. And when I got down to Millhouse in Indiana, where my cousin said one of his first masses, I was waiting for the crowd to come back from church, and I was in, I was in a big living room in the family house. And there on the wall was a huge painting of St. George slaying the dragon. The reason for that painting hanging there was that one of my uncles, George Scheidler, also a priest, insisted that his patron saint be honored in the living room with that picture of George slaying the dragon. So there was a saint in armor with a helmet, breastplate, and a spear, and a sword. That was a saint. So I had 
from very early on in my life experience, my religious experience especially, the image of angels and saints as fighters. And very soon in my own life, it became clear that it was going to be a fight. In my own parish, we had a problem with a pedophile priest who attacked one of my uncles. And we had to go to war with that situation. And I remember one time asking my mother, why was it when I was a, a child, we always went to Mass in a house. We would get up when it was dark and drive to a house where we had Mass because we couldn't go to Mass in our own parish because we were having this battle over the pedophile priest who was later removed and we got a really excellent pastor who served there for many years. But the point that I want to make is that we have warfare on our hand. It will come to greet us if we don't go looking for it. We don't have to look for it. It comes because that is what the nature of our religion is. We are at odds with the world. The world says take the easy way. The world says premarital sex is healthy. The world says that condoms are useful. The world coddles and tries to soften us up, and we know all the time, thou shalt not, takes care of most of the commandments, thou shalt not do these things. So when we come to the area of abortion, which of course is is the battle today of, of battles, I believe, because it is, it is attacking the very essence of God, life, <clears throat> the, the life giver, it attacks the very purpose of creation, Uh, to increase and multiply and inherit the land and to prepare souls to spend eternity giving glory to God. Uh, We have a big fight on our hands. Abortion is our battle today. And when it comes to abortion, we are going to be the enemy of the government, the enemy of the wealthy, the enemy of the celebrities. We're going to be the enemy of the people who produce the the movies and the videos and write the books and so on, which are worldly uh, minded and based on materialism, hedonism, pluralism, all of those isms that are the antithesis of deism or the worship of God, the one true God. So we're going to have a fight on our hand. And the fight won't possibly happen. It's inevitable. Jesus said very clearly to his apostles, and he says it to us through them, if they persecute you, recall, remember, they persecuted me first. If they hate you, they hated me. They hated him to death. They hated him so much that they executed him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. They lied about him. They betrayed him. Everything that can happen to a person that will destroy that person happened to Jesus. And they did destroy his human life. In a sense, they, they destroyed his mission. Um, it was his mission. They didn't know that. But they, the point is they got rid of him because he was a, uh, to them, he was the person that said, Thou shalt not, and you are. Uh, you should live godly lives, and you're not. And so they, they, he was a reprimand to them, and they couldn't take it. He was an embarrassment. 
even even those who propose who uh, supposedly were keeping the law were not and so he became the enemy and will be the enemy of the world and we know that it's not possible that we will it is it is certain that we will and that's why we don't have any alternative the only way to escape the battle to somehow become immune to the suffering is to leave it is to quit is to give up and join the enemy and then we'll be at peace we'll be at peace in this world but we will be uh, at war with ourselves and it's much better to be fighting evil and fighting the devil than fighting our own conscience now I've been active in the pro-life movement for 20 some years because I believe very firmly in the commandment of God thou shalt not kill and abortion is killing abortion is murder I know this from the abortionists I've talked with dozens and dozens of abortionists and they know what they're doing they're absolutely clear on the fact that abortion is murder doctor uh, name Kassar a gentleman I met down in Kansas uh, was very clear on the fact that after 20 weeks it was murder he became indignant when he heard that an abortionist was doing abortion after 20 weeks. He says, well, that's murder. The only problem was he was doing them up to 20 weeks, and that was murder. Uh, he didn't want to say that, but he knew it. He knew it in his heart of hearts, and we eventually converted him. Dr. MacArthur Hill from Boulder, Colorado, said very clearly at one of our conferences, I am a murderer. He came in one day after performing six abortions, and the bodies were laid out on the, on the little the tabletop, and he said, <clears throat> there are six children I have murdered today. And it's not even lunchtime yet. Dr. Warren Hearn, who is still an abortionist, who wrote the book on abortion, abortion practice, told a group of Planned Parenthood one time, there is no way to deny in this practice, in this operation, that we are destroying human life. You can feel it at the end of the forceps like an electric current. You can see it before your eyes. And Dr. Um, a doctor from New York, uh, whom I know so well that I can't remember his name right now, uh, told me that uh, uh, he, uh, every time he performed an abortion, he felt that he was simply a hitman, that he was taking, taking out a contract on a child that it was a hit. He took money to kill a child, and he had to get out of abortion by uh, losing his own child. He had a little girl that they had adopted, and when she was three years old, she ran in the street and was killed, and it just broke his heart. As he held her little limp body, he realized the value of a human life, and he could no longer perform abortions. But these are, these are the abortionists themselves saying, I am a murderer, I'm a hitman. <clears throat> Pardon me, I took out a contract on another human being's life. And so uh, it's very important that we understand what abortion is. We know when life begins, and certainly as Catholics, it's very clear to us we when we celebrate Christmas, that's only the birthday of Christ. The real incarnation is 
March the 25th, the Annunciation, when Mary said, Let it be done unto me according to thy word, that was when Christ came into the world as a tiny little fertilized egg. And it's very interesting that when Mary visited her cousin Elizabeth, probably within a week or ten days of the Annunciation, when she learned that Elizabeth was pregnant, it was a fetus, John the Baptist, who first recognized Christ. Uh, true God and true man when he leapt in his mother's womb. And Elizabeth makes it very clear that when Mary appeared, the babe leapt in her womb at the presence of God made man in Mary's womb. So this idea that life begins at birth or at 40 or whatever is ridiculous. Life, life begins at conception and science has caught up with theology. Science is very clear on the fact that when the egg and sperm unite, there is a new human entity alive, developing rapidly, and that the one cell of that new human life is the same cell that will multiply into the trillions and, and be, be the person, and every cell is identical. In everybody's body, every cell is identical, except the sex cells who only have half of the uh, genetic makeup that uh, is needed to make another human being. It's the only cell in our body that's different from every other cell is a sex cell, and it only has half of the component of 23 uh, chromosomes because it will take it will join with another to make a new human being. And that's that. It, people know that now. We're not stupid. The fact that we have in vitro fertilization, we know that when the sperm and egg have united in the petri dish. We have a human being. That human being can now be implanted in the woman's body. Now, the church condemns in vitro fertilization and all this other nonsense is going on, and I certainly agree with that. But the fact remains that it can be done, and when it's done, you have a new human life. The little girl who was implanted in her mother's womb in England, one of the very first, Louise Brown, they knew she was a girl. They knew she was healthy. They knew all kinds of things about her when they implanted her in her mother's womb, and she was conceived in a petri dish. So this notion that we don't know when life begins is, is bunk. That's old-fashioned. That's not the argument anymore. It's not the argument that the abortionists put up, that the feminists put up. Their argument is, who decides? They don't care if you're murdering somebody. It doesn't matter to them. They have given the option to the woman. And she has total control, not over her body, but over the body of her baby, over the life of her baby. And they will allow abortion for any reason at any time. Abortion for sex selection, abortion for convenience. It doesn't matter because these people don't see any value to human life. They, because they don't believe in God. And it's very important to believe in God to have value. There are, there are some people some atheists in the pro-life movement, although I doubt their atheism, but uh, as a matter of routine, the people in pro-life will be religious. And the more religious they are, the more pro-life they'll be and the more effective they'll be. Uh, I have a very strong theory, uh, which, which I believe is absolute, that the only way we can win this battle is through work and prayer. 
ora et labora. The prayer comes first. The closeness to God, the closeness to our Blessed Mother, the closeness to the saints will give us the strength, will give us the courage, will give us the enthusiasm, and will give us the perseverance that we need to fight this battle. And then we take what talents we have, whatever they are, and everybody has some talents, and we apply them to winning this fight over the forces of evil. See, Satan is, is clever. <clears throat> Satan is, is no dummy. He was the Lucifer, the bearer of light. He was one of the most brilliant of, the, of God's creation when he betrayed God and was cast out. He carried with him this intelligence, this belief. Satan, they say, can quote scripture. He believes in God. He certainly uh, spent time with him. He knows who is master. But his goal seems to be to deprive God of souls, to destroy um, grace in those who, whom God wants to be his own. That's Satan's victory. And he's got the world by the tail. He's, he's winning uh, in many respects. But ultimately, God wins. And we want to be on, in God's army. And so to, to fight the evil that prevails in the world today, we have to pray and we have to work. Ora et labora. That's the winning combination uh, that will ultimately prevail over Satan. But I find it's absolutely critical to be always in a state of grace, to pray frequently whenever we do anything, even before we started this little program today, we said a prayer. We called on the Holy Spirit to help us. We asked for God to speak through us so that we can reach people because we're doing God's work. And God doesn't need huge armies of people. We've been out on the clinics. I have in my book, Closed, 99 Ways to Stop Abortion. I have a chapter on the dirty dozen. You get a dozen people, you can do a lot. That was uh, Christ's idea. He had a dozen. He had 12 apostles. And they said uh, one day, what do you want us to do? And he said, save the world. Just go out and save the entire world. They'd each take a country. They were only, remember, St. Uh, James went to Spain and St. Thomas went to India. and uh, St. Paul went everywhere else. They had to save the world. That was the, the order from the commander-in-chief. And we get very similar orders. We have to save this wretched world because God wants it. Remember one time I was invited to a Baptist church. It was a fellowship Sunday, and I went. And the pastor got up, and of course they have more time to preach than our priests do, and so they can prepare a longer sermon. And I know he was very dramatic, the, the um, minister got up and he had a copy of the Chicago Sun-Times, which we call lovingly the Chicago Scum Slimes. And because of its, its uh, movie ads and its, uh, its uh, sensationalism and all. And he started reading headlines out of the Sun-Times for that Sunday morning. And they were atrocious. It was at the time that this Jeffrey Dahmer was eating people up in... Milwaukee, and there were many, many uh, drive-by shootings and just one atrocity after another, the crimes, the debauchery. And so after reading eight or ten headlines, he said, I can't, I just can't 
stay in this, I'm going to turn back to the religious section and find some solace and consolation. And so he turned back to the religion section and there was a case of pedophilia. There was a case of a Protestant minister who had been caught with a prostitute and there were uh, boxes of pornographic uh, magazines in the car. And it, it, one story was worse than the next in the religion section. So he threw the paper down very dramatically and said, what a rotten, filthy, disgusting world. And we all agreed noddingly. And then he said, and God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would be saved. And he said, not the world that we dream about, not the world that we old timers remember, not the world of our grandparents, but this world today, the way it is, God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son. He would send him today right in the midst of the crime waves that we have, he would still send his son and does send his son because he loves us and he wants us to love him. And so that's the, the fight that we have. We have to face what we have and we have to try to bring his kingdom. The prayer that Jesus taught us is significant, of course, in many ways, but the, the thing that always stands out when I, when I say the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, however you interpret that, that is a prayer, a plea to bring God's kingdom here, to make this world godly. Thy will be done on earth. That's not a suggestion. That's the prayer that Jesus taught us and we are obliged to try to do that. Remember, Jesus told us, be ye perfect, as my heavenly Father is perfect. That is quite an ambitious undertaking, to become as perfect as God. And yet Jesus said to do that. And Jesus told us to bring his kingdom to this earth. Now, we're not doing a real good job of that. If you look around and you see the treachery, the dishonesty, if you look at the wars that are going on and have gone on, the prejudice and bias and bigotry, the, uh, the cheating, the betraying, and all these sins, and the other sins that I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, sins against, uh, against the flesh and all, you see that we're not doing real well at bringing the kingdom, and yet the goal is still there. The goal will always be there to try to bring his kingdom to this earth. And we, how do we do that? We use what we have. We use our talents. We use our time. And we organize as best we can. And we become determined to do it. And God is not interested in numbers. If we remember in the Old Testament, in the story of Gideon, where Gideon had to fight, was it the Philistines? Enormous armies. And he tried to gather a force that would be at least presentable. And God said, it's too many, it's too big. I think he had 3,000 soldiers. And he said, um, get rid of these and get rid of these and see how these drink and ask whoever wants to, to leave, man. He got it clear down to about 300. And Gideon said, there's no way I can fight this battle with this small force. And God said, I'll fight it with you. 
and Gideon won. And we find that even now and, and throughout history that it's frequently been the small armies, the small undertakings that are successful. God doesn't need armies. In fact, he wants it to be clear that if we win, it was through his grace and his assistance and his prevailing. I remember the movie on Henry the fifth where he takes a small army to France to fight overwhelming French forces and when the battle's over he's lost only a small number of men and the French have lost thousands and thousands and in the in the movie version as they march across the battlefield one of of Henry's soldiers begins singing a very beautiful Latin hymn non nobis domine sed nomine tuo da gloriam not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name goes the glory. It was very clear that in that battle, at least, uh, God was on the side of the smaller army that prevailed over the larger. And that's pretty much the story of God's battles, that he will use the weak things, the imperfect, the, the lowly to win his battles. And then it's clear that he won the battle. And scripture's full of passages like that, that uh, St. Paul makes it very clear that he understood his own infirmities. And yet, with God's grace, we could do all things. We're powerful with God's grace. That's why it's, it's absolutely critical that remain, we remain in God's grace, but also that we, uh, we work with others who also are God's friends. And that's why uh, the Pro-Life Action League, the uh, American Life League, Nellie Gray's March for Life, all these organizations are made up of people who are totally dedicated to saving the unborn. You know, we tend to think of the unborn, since we don't know the unborn, they're hidden away, they're nameless, they're little, they're, they, we, we tend to think of them as less than us, less than people, less than full-blown people. We talk about fetuses and the unborn and all. These are glorious people, just as Christ in the womb of his blessed mother was the savior of the world. He was God become man. So these children in the womb are fully human, full human beings, in many ways more perfect than we are. They're in the process of developing and growing. They haven't developed a lot of imperfections and a, a lot of weakness and so on. Uh, they are fully human at every stage of their development. Uh, they are simply not known. And so we tend to, even pro-lifers, tend to think of them as sometimes as, as less than full people. This isn't true. We have to see them with the eyes of God. God knew us forming in the womb. We even have the prophets and, and the Old Testament uh, writers saying that we are, we are wonderfully made and that God knew us while he was forming us in the womb and he had a plan for us. And uh, Jesus himself was very cognizant of little people, of the children. So often when he would talk about the kingdom, which he had come to preach, the kingdom of God, he would use the example of a child. Remember the time 
that the apostles were arguing about who was going to be the most important, who was going to sit up close to the throne in the kingdom. And Jesus, it said, saw a little child running by, and he uh, he took the little child and stood him in their midst and put his arm around him, and he said, whoever receives a little child like this in my name receives me, and not me, but him who sent me. You receive God, you receive the kingdom. You receive a little child, you receive the kingdom. It's a beautiful story, and certainly a beautiful message to pro-life activists that if we receive the child, if we try to help the child, we are going to receive the kingdom. It's a good, quite a promise. Another time when Jesus was resting before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the apostles saw the women bringing the children to see Jesus, and apparently this was a common thing for mothers to bring their children to be blessed by Jesus. But this time, the apostles wanted Jesus to rest, and so they tried to send them away. And it says Jesus heard the commotion. And when he found out what it was, he uttered those beautiful words that, that have echoed down through history. Suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And we have a beautiful picture of Jesus with the children climbing all over him. That he had this, this love of the innocence and the trustfulness and, and the purity uh, the guilelessness of the child. And then he told the apostles one time when they wanted to know what the bottom line would be, what would really uh, constitute the, the judgment. And he said, whatever you've done to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Now, people in the pro-life movement, when they save a child, when they talk a woman out of an abortion, or even when they just try to, they do it to Jesus. And therefore, when the abortionists destroy the life of the child, they do it to Jesus. So there's a, at the abortion clinics on Saturday morning, we go out and we have these howling, screaming, foul-mouthed descorts there trying to interfere with our talking to the women. They are, in a very real sense, a very real sense, crucifying Christ. And we, in a very real sense, are trying by saving the children to actually carry out Christ's mission, Christ's command. What I can't understand, never have been able to, is how a professing Catholic, somebody who understands his religion well and knows that Christ is present in the Eucharist, knows that Christ has given us the direction. He's the way, the truth, and the life. At a time of crisis, when the church is in crisis, when our nation is in crisis, when the whole world, in a very real sense, is, is teetering on the brink of disaster, how they can sit back and let someone else do it. How they can stay out of this effort to save the unborn. You know, there's a Greek tradition, and I've got a lot of Greek friends now, and good Greek Catholics, and Russian Catholics. There's a good Greek tradition that if you save a life sometime during your lifetime, you will save your soul. That God will take that into account when judgment, your judgment comes. 
if you cared enough to risk your life for someone else and to save a life, you will not lose your soul. Now, I don't know if that's sound theology. I kind of hope it is. But it stands to reason. Whatever you've done to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. And the parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan and other instances where a person went out of his way. Look at, for instance, the good thief. You know, he was a bad person. He was a bad person, but simply by showing his concern for Christ's suffering, saying he was a just man, he shouldn't be suffering, we deserve to suffer, Christ promised him eternal happiness that day. This day you will be with me in paradise. Because this man showed compassion. Showed compassion. So I think if we show compassion and love toward our brethren and are willing to go out there and try to save a baby's life, I think that will be taken into consideration when we stand before the judgment seat of God, as we all will, individually, with nobody there to make excuses for us. And we have a wonderful opportunity every day to go out and save a life. Now, I'm no great sidewalk counselor, and yet I have had occasions to save lives, to talk to women, to convince them that abortion was not the right thing to do. I've had occasion to sit down in restaurants with young women and talk them out of abortion. I've had occasion to see their babies when they got born. And it's a wonderful, wonderful experience to see a beautiful little child. I remember one time I talked this Playboy Bunny out of having an abortion. And on her own, she came to our office months later with this little girl, this beautiful little girl. That was her whole life. She said, I can't even allow myself to think of what I was going to do when I look at Jennifer and see that she's the center of my life now. And this has happened over and over again. And I know people who have dissuaded hundreds of women from having abortions. Hundreds. Uh, every year they have a banquet here in Chicago and they list the names of the babies that have been saved from abortions. And there are, I think, five or six hundred in the middle of the book last time in uh, one of the groups here that has a number of crisis pregnancy centers. We can save them. And we're effective. Pro-life activists are effective. Uh, we have at present, when this tape is being made, a pro-abortion president, pretty much a pro-abortion Congress. We have all the celebrities against us, Whoopi Goldberg and Morgan Fairchild and all these great minds. Uh, we have the uh, medical associations against us, this bar scene from Star Wars uh, a group of appointees that we have in government, they're all mostly pro-abortion and pro-condom and pro-pornography and, and all. And yet, despite all that, uh, we're winning. We're winning very gradually, but we're winning the hearts and minds of people, and we are closing abortion clinics, and we are getting doctors to quit. I just had a call recently from a woman in Alabama who was telling me about two more abortionists who have quit and that their report is that three-fourths of the workers in the clinic know that we're right. And they all want to quit. At least these three-fourths of the workers in this one clinic want to quit because 
they can't stand the killing. When we've had our abortion providers conferences here in Chicago, the abortionists have told us how bad it is in the clinics when we're there. One doctor told us, Tony Levitino, and he was the fellow I couldn't think of earlier, Tony Levitino from Troy, New York, told us if there's one pro-lifer outside the clinic, he would slow down when he was doing abortions. He would slow down and do half the abortions that he would ordinarily do. That the counselors fight with each other. That the women are, are harder to convince that they should go through with the abortion. That our presence there is devastating to them. We don't have to necessarily have a sit-in or a rescue or anything. Just being there changes the whole atmosphere inside because they know what they're doing is wrong. It's very clear to them. And so we have to remember that we, what we're doing with God's help is powerful. Prayer is powerful. More is done by prayer, uh, and we've heard this since we were little, but it's, it becomes very, very true to you in the pro-life movement than we can even imagine. I've seen lives saved just through prayer. And almost all of the abortionists who have come over to our side, and now it's, it's way up in close to at least a, a 75 or 100 that we know of. It, we've had three of these conferences of former abortionists, and now I've got so many names, I don't know which ones to select for our next conference. They were all converted by somebody caring about them, somebody praying for them. My wife is writing a book now on the conversion of abortionists, and in almost every case, it was some good Christian or Catholic or somebody who didn't give up on them, who prayed, prayed them into pro-life, prayed them back into the church, prayed them back into the good graces of God. And so we have powerful tools. Our protests are working. Our uh, prayer vigils are working. Our sidewalk counseling is working. And, but we have to keep it up. And we need armies of people to do this. See, I always had the idea that if, we, if all people calling themselves Christian, and certainly all people calling themselves Catholic, would act like it, would go out there and be the church militant, and go out in the front of these abortion clinics, we would shut them down. They could not function. If you took the churches in Chicago, there are 380-some parishes now, and you only took 10 people from each of those parishes, or only one person from each parish, and you would go out in front of these abortion clinics, you would shut them down. They couldn't operate the sheer numbers of people, and they couldn't. the police couldn't begin to arrest them. There would be no arrests if people came out, if people believed, if people were willing to put their body on the line, if they were willing to fight for what they believe. We would shut down the abortion clinics all over this country. We would do it. We could do it with sheer numbers. If the community would rise up and say, we don't want a death camp in our city. Frankie Schaefer, who wrote the foreword to my book, said that any town or community that allows an abortion clinic to function has accepted abortion as a solution. They let it, they let it function. And it will destroy that town, that city, and that community. Just as today, when we hear of Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau, Mauthausen, beautiful communities that are known for what? Extermination camps. And that's what's happening in America today. We have extermination camps. 
when you hear of Wichita, what do you think of now? You think of, of the summer in Wichita where pro-lifers tried to close down George Tiller's abortion mill, where Tiller kills big babies routinely every week. One of our abortion providers who had come over to our side, uh, Laura Tivis, had worked for George Tiller, and she had to help him one day when he put the boxes of dead babies into the incinerator, the crematorium, in his clinic. She said it was the most horrible thing she ever had to do. It haunted her. The smell of those babies burning. He would save them up. He would do these late-term abortions, and when he had 50 pounds of babies, then he would stoke up the incinerator and burn them. Uh, this is going on in America. We have our death camps, and we'll be known for our death camps. And that cries out to heaven for God's judgment. We murder 5,000 innocent, defenseless children every day in this country. 1.567 million every year. And then we say, God bless America. Well, God is not going to bless America. God is not mocked. We cannot destroy his image and likeness. We cannot destroy human beings who are created to come to know, love, and serve him and spend eternity with him in heaven. We can't destroy these little children and get God's blessing. So it's imperative that Catholics get in this battle and they begin to fight. And they're not fighting alone. I've found that in the pro-life movement there is a genuine ecumenism growing up. An awful lot of my friends are of other faiths than I am, and yet we have in common that we believe in God as Father, we believe in Jesus as our Savior, and we believe in the lives of these children. And we can work together. Yes, we can have theological battles uh, during recess time, but when we're out in front of the abortion clinics, we, we're fighting for a common cause. And a genuine ecumenism is coming into this movement. I've met people like Scott Hahn and Steve Woods and Jerry Matatick, and I can go on and on and on. Former militant anti-Catholics who are now in the Catholic Church. And a great deal of it came about through the pro-life movement, through working with others who believed, at least in the most basic uh, truth, that, that God doesn't make junk, that we are all children of the same Father. And what we do, we have to do with enthusiasm. Remember when David went to meet Goliath? David was just this little shepherd with a sheepskin and a couple slick stones and a slingshot, and Goliath was this huge giant armed to the teeth with a shield and sword. And when David went out to fight Goliath, he didn't hide and whimper. He ran toward him. He ran with enthusiasm because he knew that he had God with him. And that even though he was smaller and poorly armed and everything else, he would win this battle. And that's the sort of enthusiasm we have to have. So David was less well-armed. He was, he was certainly uh, young and small and inexperienced. And yet, he rushed toward Goliath because he knew that he, was, he had the God of victory on his side. And that's the attitude that we have to have. I've reached the point when I am driving toward an abortion clinic, if, if somebody else is driving and I'm 
right in the car. I start opening the door before the car stops. I want to get out there on the sidewalk and get started with this fight. It's a fight that you you feel God's presence. I know I try to get to Mass every morning, and I certainly feel the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and the Mass, but I also feel his presence out there at the abortion clinic. He's with us. And I feel the mantle of Mary around us. And I have found, since I've been a pro-lifer, I've developed much more devotion to the Blessed Mother. I mean, after all, she was a young woman who broke the law to save a baby. When she left Israel with Joseph and they escaped into Egypt, that was a capital offense. But she was willing to break the law to save a baby when Herod was after her son. And she certainly is the model and the patroness of the pro-life movement, a young woman saving a child. And that's what we try to do at the clinics to save these babies' lives. So everything comes together in this movement. You feel the presence of God. You are doing what Jesus asked you to do. Whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do it to me. You're helping women in a way nobody else has. So many of these women are pressured into abortion, you can't believe it. We've seen them at the clinic, dragged in. I saw one young girl crying, being pushed into the clinic by her boyfriend, who had a hammer lock on her, had her arm behind her back, and was pressing to get her in. I saw one young woman dragged into the clinic by the scarf around her neck. She was pulled in, literally, into that clinic. I saw young ones, a young Spanish mother who had children in the car, and she was dragged in by her screaming husband. I've seen women betrayed and misled and forced into abortion, something that they will live with the rest of their life. So if we love women, if we really care about these women, we will try to rescue them from the horror of killing their own child. You know, that's a terrible thing to do. I remember one time a little Jewish girl came to my office, and I recall she was Jewish because she kept making an issue of it, that there was nothing I could do to keep her from having an abortion. She was going to have an abortion, and she simply came into my office to tell me that I couldn't talk her out of it. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing. You know that one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people in our age was Adolf Hitler. And she said, yes, we hate him for what he did to, uh, to the Jews. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing. You're working right hand in glove with him because he liked to kill Jews, and that's what you're doing when you kill your child. But you know, Adolf Hitler, as far as we know, never killed his own child, and that's what you're doing. So if you think this is such a wonderful thing, just consider that, that you're doing something worse than your greatest enemy ever did, and you're working right along with him, getting rid of the Jews. So I don't know if that had any effect on her. She walked out in a huff. But we have to realize that what, what happens in an abortion is that a human being made in the image and likeness of Almighty God with an eternal destiny is destroyed, is killed, is never allowed to live or love or, or come to know its parents. And a lot of women suffer from that in later years. My sister 
worked in a geriatric ward down in Indianapolis, and she said one of the saddest things she ever encountered would be an old, old woman rocking a pillow and singing to it, the baby she had killed years before. And one time a priest came from St. Peter's in the Loop when I had an office down there in the Loop, and he said, you know, Mr. Scheidler, I hear confessions every day, and the ones that break my heart are the women who come in, old women who are still confessing the abortion they had 30, 40, 50 years ago. And I tell them, my child, God has forgiven you. And they say, I know, Father, but I can't forgive myself. They don't have that child now. Somebody who might love them, might care for them. We're not doing women any favors at all by giving them the right, the so-called right to kill their children. So we have to take that message out. We have to do something to save our country. Our country was founded on a belief in the value of each individual life. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is, an in, is a, a, a right uh, that cannot be taken away. The government has no right to allow abortion. No right at all. That's an inalienable right, and that's why the Supreme Court ruling of 1973 is an atrocity. It's unconstitutional, and we wish they would, would see that. Someday they will. There'll come a time in this country, I believe firmly, when abortion will be considered the way slavery is now considered. When slavery was in vogue, people defended it. They said it had to be. It could never be changed. It, it was economically necessary. It was better for the slaves, and so on. All the arguments. And some little crackpot group of religious fanatics said, no, it's wrong. It's just wrong. And they started working to get rid of slavery. A whole half of the nation depended on slavery, and yet they said they were going to get rid of it. People thought they were crazy. And yet today, if you would go say, well, I need to buy a slave, people think you were crazy. And someday people are going to look back and say, you know, those crackpots, those radical fanatics, those people they made all kind of laws against, they were right. They were right. That's going to happen. Well, we are right. And someday we'll be exonerated. Probably, probably not in my lifetime. I don't know. But someday, someday people will look back and say, they were killing human beings. Abortion was killing human beings. You can't do that. But meanwhile, we've got our fight on our hands. It's a tough fight. And it's a fight that takes a lot of courage, a lot of energy. You're going to be persecuted. I don't know how many lawsuits I've had against me. I know i got one right now before the Supreme Court. Now versus Scheider, it's been a headache, eight years, uh, false accusations, charged with bombing and arson and all kind of stupid stuff I don't do, I don't support. I, I can have a press conference in front of an abortion clinic that has been damaged and say the purpose of this press conference is to discourage people from bombing clinics. And the abortionists will use that against me, saying that I'm having a press conference in order to congratulate the people who bombed the clinic. And so they will, they will lie. 
and they will twist the truth. But we have to remember that their patron saint is the father of lies. That he was a liar and a murderer, as Jesus said, from the beginning. That Satan does not know truth. There is no truth in him. And that his followers will also be deceivers. So we had to be prepared for that. Persecution, hatred, false judgments will be taken before judges. Uh, we may spend time in jail, but it's for righteousness sake. God will win in the end. We have to do what we do with love because it's absolutely essential. Since God is love and God loves all these people, we have to love them too. Sometimes that has to be tough love. When we go picking an abortionist home, it, it takes tough love to do that. But we love him enough to get him out of the abortion business. And Tony Levitino told us if anybody had ever come to him, his home with his name on one of the signs, he would have quit doing abortions. And a number have. Henry Hyde, here in, in Chicago one time, gave a very beautiful talk which he concluded with a prayer saying that he believed that when we stand before the judgment seat of God those of us who have been involved in this battle for the unborn this pro-life fight that we will have an advocate that all the little children whom we couldn't save will be there and they will be a voice on our behalf and we'll need somebody. Well, all, Henry said, when you stand there before the judgment of God, you're going to be trembling. You're going to be scared. Your eternity faces you. And you'll need an advocate. And the advocate will be those little children that we saved or tried to save. And they'll say, be merciful to this one, Lord. He loved us. And that may be what happens. But whether it's that or not, I believe that someday when we are part of the church triumphant, when we don't have to go out to the abortion clinics, when we don't have to fight the good fight because we'll have fought it, when we no longer have to have blind faith because we'll see God face to face, when we no longer have to hope for our salvation because we'll have attained it, when all we have left is love, which St. Paul says is the greatest of the three virtues anyway, I think we'll look back from time to time when granted permission to these days when we could tell God we believed in him and go out and show him. And when we could tell him we hoped in him and let him know how much we hoped. I think we'll have a little twinge of nostalgia for these good old days, right now, right now, while I'm talking to you and you're listening to me, and we'll kind of wish we could go back just for a moment and live them again. So let's thank God we're living them now. Let's thank God we have this chance right now, today, to prove to God that we love him by showing him how much we love his children. Thanks for listening. We hope you were inspired by this podcast and we encourage you to share it on social media and warmly invite you to distribute our free Catholic scapulars, medals, books, and booklets to your family, friends, parish, and social groups. Visit us online at catholiccity.com for more information. 
The real work of the Mary Foundation is accomplished by people just like you. There are three ways to help. First, please pray for everyone who hears, reads, or wears our materials. Second, share them with everyone you know, family, friends, fellow parishioners, and the people you work with. Only you can reach them. Finally, please help us financially. It seems impossible, but we don't do traditional fundraising here at the Mary Foundation. We rely on your generosity and God's providence. By the way, if you, your parish, or your Catholic group would like to distribute our materials by the dozens, hundreds, or even thousands, all we ask for is help covering our materials costs. So please visit us online for suggested donations. For our Canadian friends and those outside the United States, only online requests are accepted, so please refer to the special shipping rates listed on our website. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to working with you. May God bless you always. And now, here's a short preview of our Rosary and Divine Mercy Chaplet, the most popular rosary recording in the history of the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. For an increase in the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without permission is prohibited.